Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and pray and thank God for a great morning and a great early afternoon. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we are your sons, your daughters. And Father, we thank you that you've called us with a holy calling. And Lord, you've put a purpose in the middle of our calling. And Father, our prayer is that each and every person here today will leave this place with a richer sense of destiny, a richer sense of purpose, and and Lord, a greater definition of what it is that we're called to do and who it is that we're called to be and how we're to relate to one another. Father, we thank you for the privilege today of just knowing that, that you have put your love upon us. And, Father, not simply to let it rest within us, but, Father, to flow through us. And, Father, you've called us to be vessels. You've not simply called us to be recipients of blessing, but distributors of blessing. And we, we pray that you'll help us to learn to flow more effectively in that, more freely in that. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. You can go ahead and be seated. It is a joy to be in Seekonk. I won't tell you that last Saturday and Sunday I was in the desert of Southern California. I won't tell you how warm it was there. How, but uh, let me just tell you this. The sun is shining, shining just as bright today in Seekonk as it was in the desert last Saturday in Southern California. Uh, it is always a joy to be here. Uh, all way back through the years when Pastor Sam was here and we so uh, appreciate Pastor John and, and uh, just the great job that you and Anita are doing and, and the whole team. And, um, and those of you from other churches, thank you for coming today. Um, I want to, we're going to be sharing about, and how many of you have heard our In Search of Timothy material before? Let me see your hand. A number of you have. How many of you have not heard our In Search of Timothy material? Okay, of those of you that have heard it, how many of you, it's been a few years? Let me see your hand. Yeah, it's been a while. How many of you know it doesn't hurt to get a refresher? Doesn't hurt to get reminded. And, uh, but we are going to share, matter of fact, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John 17, uh, we're going to share a lot of the basic material that we've always covered when we deal with In Search of Timothy. And, but I'm also going to share a few additional thoughts today, especially for the sake of those of you that have been here. Um, I believe, you know, that people will sometimes say, that God, have you ever heard this phrase, God moves in mysterious ways? And um, I don't know, you know, different people probably mean different things by that. Um, but I, I would kind of differ with that in that I think that God moves in fairly predictable ways. Um, the idea that God moves in mysterious ways, now, I understand that God can do some pretty awesome surprises. God ever done a like the Bible says, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all we could ask or think. So I'm not trying to mean that God is mundane or boring or whatever, but I don't think that God wants to be so mysterious to him that we have no means of connecting with him or hooking up with him. Uh, he want, how, how would you like to have a friend that was just always doing things that were chaotic and erratic and you just say, well, you never know what they're going to do? It's kind of hard to hook up with somebody if they're all over the place. And God has called us into partnership with himself. Do you understand? God's called us into partnership with himself. So if we're going to partner with him, then we need to have some kind of idea about how he operates and what his methods are and things like that. And, and when I see what God has done, he's revealed himself to us. He's not concealed himself from us. 
If God didn't want us to be known by him, uh, Jesus would never have come and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, God wouldn't have given us a, a, a library of 66 books that we call the Bible telling us about him from cover to cover if he didn't want us to know him. He wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit, the teacher, to live on the inside of us if he didn't want us to know him. And I'm not saying we know everything. The Bible says we know in part. We prophesy in part. How many of you know there's going to come a day when we'll know perfectly, uh, just as he's known us? But that that day's not today. Uh, But thank God for what we do know. And, um, and I believe that God is fairly predictable in how he's worked in, in the course of time and how he's worked in the earth. And here's what I found a, a pattern, a simple pattern for how God works is, and this is foundational to understand, as Pastor John said, his hero is Paul, and, uh, but Paul also had a Timothy. And uh, Paul always worked with teams whenever he could. So uh, when God wants to do something in the earth, here's the basic pattern that God follows. Number one, and you can find this all through the Bible. It's a pretty predictable pattern. When God wants to do something in the earth, number one, he raises up a leader. Everybody say, a leader. God doesn't start with a committee. God starts with a leader. Uh, One person said, for God so loved the world, he did not send a committee. Um, but when God wants to do something in the earth, he, he calls Noah, he calls Abraham, he calls David, he calls Nehemiah, he calls Esther, he calls Ruth, he calls Paul. When God wants to do something in the earth, he starts with what? A leader. And number two, he gives the leader an assignment. Sometimes we call that calling and a, a vision, a mission, but God gives the leader an assignment. He doesn't just say, I want you to serve me in some vague, obtuse, undefined way. No, he tells Noah, I want you to build an ark. He tells Abraham, I want you to go on a journey. He tells David, I want you to be a king to my people. He tells Nehemiah, what? I want you to rebuild the walls. He tells Gideon, I want you to, you know, defend Israel against the Midianites. He, he gives the leader a specific assignment. God is not a vague, you know, uh, vaporous type being. God is into strategy and strategic assignments and things like that. Paul had a specific assignment to plant churches. Um, you know, Jesus had a specific assignment to die on the cross for us. When God calls a leader, he will then give the leader an assignment. Now, with the exception of Jesus, I think what we see in the Bible is when God gives the leader an assignment, there's a third step that's involved, and that is the leader panics. Uh, Seriously, that is the pattern. God raises up a leader. He gives the leader an assignment, and then the leader panics. Um, Moses, for example, when God called him, he said, well, God, I, I don't speak very well. I had this terrible failure 40 years ago. Um, they won't believe me. I, what, what's your name? What, you know, he gives all these excuses and God is never impressed with the excuses of a leader. Um, 
Gideon, you remember what Gideon said when God called him? He said, but God, I'm from the poorest family in my tribe. And my tribe is, I mean, we're the worst tribe in the whole, you know, uh, the whole uh, nation. Uh, Gideon didn't just have an inferiority complex. He's just inferior. And um, God called uh, Sarah. Remember what Sarah said? She said, I'm too old. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. Uh, Everybody always had an excuse. Uh, Peter said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Uh, Paul said, um, he said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Remember what Isaiah said when God called him? He said, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, here's the man who's going to give more prophetic utterances about the coming of the Messiah than any of the other prophets, and yet he feels unworthy to the assignment. You show me a leader that when God calls them and that leader says, yeah, God, I knew you were smart to call somebody like me. I've got so much talent. I've got so much on the ball. Now, every leader that I know that ever gets called says, God, please, you've you got to be kidding. It's got to be somebody else. I don't know what I'm doing. Those are the leaders that God will use. Uh, one person said, uh, God will send no man away empty except for the man who's full of himself. And so if we'll humble ourselves before God and, and realize that, you know, uh, we're not doing God a favor when we serve him. He's doing us a favor when he allows us to serve him. But so, so number one, here's how it works. God calls a leader. Number two, God gives the leader a specific assignment. Number three, uh, the leader panics. And number four, God answers. And God's answer is always very simple. And again, you can see this all through Scripture. God's answer is always, it's in two parts. It's like the two sides of a coin. And the first side of the coin that God answers is, I will be with you. Real simple, I'll be with you. And implied in that statement is, you don't have to do this in your ability. I'm going to give you ability beyond your ability. I'm going to give you wisdom beyond your wisdom. I'm going to anoint you with my spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to empower you. And so you don't have to trust in yourself. You're not restricted. Now, God will use our talent, skills, and abilities, but don't ever restrict God to your talent, skills, and abilities because God can do so much more than just the natural stuff you have to work with. But God says, I will be with you. And then the second thing that God always says is, and I'll give you a team. I'll surround you. Here's a pattern that I've seen in Scripture and throughout church history is that God always starts with a leader, but he always finishes with a team. And the challenge is getting what's inside the leader out into the context of teamwork. Abraham had, at one point, we read he had 318 servants that were helping him. Um, Trying to think, David had a, a team of mighty men. Uh, Dave, uh, oh, my wife's thing went off. Sorry. Okay. Um, I was wondering, what is that voice over there? Um, technology is, is a blessing sometimes, but, um, David had his mighty men. Uh, Paul had a team of people that surrounded him and worked with him. He was always talking about Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and Mark and all these guys that were there as part of the team helping him. 
Uh, Jesus even had a team. Do you realize that? And, and I'm going to tell you what, when we look at Jesus' team, that means there's hope for all of us. <laughs> they were not always the uh, sharpest knives in the drawer. We'll just put it that way. And so, so God starts with a leader, but he always ends up with a team. And um, I, I want to talk today, and I really want to emphasize the fact that God has called us into partnership with himself. God has called us into partnership with himself. And if we can grasp the meaning of partnership. Now, how many of you know that even in your individual life, God has called you into partnership with him? I mean, God doesn't expect you to go through life doing everything on your own. He's your partner. And I just read a quote recently by a guy, and I wish I'd written it down for this morning. I didn't. But he said, if I could hear Jesus in the next room praying for me, I would not be afraid of any enemy. Stop and think about that. If you could hear Jesus in the next room praying for you. And how many of you know that he does? The Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. I want us to look, turn in your Bibles to John 17. And I want us to look at something that Jesus prayed. Can you imagine any prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ not being answered by God? Can you imagine him praying something that God would not, respond to. We know that, and Jesus said, whatever ask of the Father, he gives me. But how many of you know that there are times when you pray that it's not just a matter of you and your prayer and God? Have you ever prayed for somebody else? And how many of you know that sometimes it requires their cooperation with God? Because God is a what? He's a gentleman, and he doesn't force things on people. But God asks for what from us? He asks for our cooperation. And one of the most amazing prayers that Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 20, Jesus prayed, he said, he's surrounded here by Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, etc. And he says, I do not pray for these alone. In other words, I'm not just praying for this immediate group that's here with me right now. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that include? Do you know that Jesus prayed for you the night before he went to the cross? He prayed for you. He prayed for me. What did he pray? That they all may be one. What's another word for one? United. What about the word team, that they... They all might be one, that they might be united, that they might be a team, a unified team. I pray that they might be, all may be one, a unified team, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, let me ask you this. How well did the Father and Jesus work together in partnership? How well did they work in teamwork? How good were they at the unity thing, the Father and Jesus? Were they pretty good? You know, Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. He said, I didn't come to do my will, but the, the will of him that sent me. He said, I don't even speak my own words. I just speak what I hear my Father saying. And Jesus' prayer was that we 
would be one, that we would be a unified team just as Jesus and the Father are unified in their teamwork with one another. And here's what he says, uh, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. God gave us his glory, his presence, his spirit, his anointing, so that we could be one, so that we could be a unified team, just as the Father and Jesus are a unified team. Now, do you notice anybody missing here? By name, what about the Holy Spirit? Is he in this prayer? Is it, let me ask you, is his name mentioned? Have we read his name? But is he in this prayer? Isn't it something how the Holy Spirit is inspired? We know that how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good. Everything Jesus did, he did because he was inspired and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Even this prayer that he is praying, it is a spirit-led prayer. But isn't it interesting that his name is not mentioned? But did you know that a person's name doesn't have to be mentioned for them to be a vital part of the unity that's involved? The Holy Spirit often works subtly and discreetly behind the scenes. He's right in the middle. And you know what Jesus is really praying here when he says, I pray that they may be one as we are one. He's praying that the teamwork of the church will be like the teamwork of the Trinity. Read the rest of this. Look at, uh, again, verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one or in unity or in teamwork and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as much as you have loved me. According to what Jesus prayed, there is a factor that will determine whether the world believes and whether the world knows. And the factor that determines whether the world will come to believe and know, you notice he didn't say, oh, Father, I pray that the preachers will preach great sermons. Then the world will believe. He didn't pray that, did he? Now, we preachers, we want to preach good sermons, but Jesus didn't say the world coming to believe was contingent upon how good we preach. He said whether the world believes or not is going to be contingent on whether my people function as one the same way that there's unity within the Trinity. Now, let me give you a real quick summary of how the Trinity operates in unity. Um, again, people think the Trinity is a great mystery, and there is an element of mystery to it. I don't understand everything about the Trinity, but what I do see in the Bible is pretty clear. Um, God the Father has a role and a function. God the Son has a role and a function. God the Holy Spirit has a role and a function. And it looks something like this. God the Father plans. He's authority. God the Son performs. He executes and carries out, and God the Holy Spirit perfects. He, he brings revealing, and he, he nurtures things into fullness. For example, uh, your redemption. How many of you are thankful today to be redeemed? 
if I asked you who redeemed you, uh, you would all pretty much shout out Jesus, and you'd be right. Certainly would not be at fault with that. But Jesus didn't come to do his own thing. He came to do the, the will of the Father. So God the Father planned redemption. God the Son came to the earth and actually carried it out. And then who came afterwards to reveal it in our hearts? The Holy Spirit. So God the Father planned it. God the Son performed it. God the Holy Ghost perfects it in our life. And it took all three members of the Trinity. Guess what? Every single member of the Trinity was 100% committed to your redemption. Each of them did their part perfectly. Nobody was complaining about, you know, Jesus, well, I don't know why the Father gets to sit in heaven and make all the decisions, and I have to come down here and do what he says. And I don't, you know, what if the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost had decided, you know what, it's so much more comfortable up here in heaven. I'd just rather stay up here in the glory and with the angels. And, you know, I don't want to go down amongst those people. They're a mess. You know, they, it's just a mess down there on earth. I want to stay up here comfortable where it's heaven. No, each member of the Trinity carried out their specific responsibility, their specific function. They understood their roles and their responsibilities. And Jesus wasn't trying to usurp the Father, and the Holy Spirit wasn't griping because, well, Jesus gets all the credit, and I, I have to do all this stuff behind the scenes. Uh, no, they each performed their roles absolutely perfectly in absolute harmony, and Jesus said, I pray that their unity will be like our unity. And to operate at the level of the unity of the Trinity, that's a pretty high calling, isn't it? That's a pretty high standard. And you even think about creation. How did creation happen? Well, um, Jesus, according to John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and, and uh, Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the actual agent of creation. God the Father planned it. God the Son did it. Jesus created everything. You remember the Bible says, and God said, let there be. And who's the word? Jesus is the word. And then who was hovering over the face of the waters? The Holy Spirit. And so, again, in the Trinity, there is perfect unity. There's perfect harmony. There's perfect teamwork. And Jesus' prayer was that our unity would be like the unity of the Trinity. So how have we been doing? And let's not just take our church. Let's not just take our specific church. Because how many of you know there's always room to grow? Nobody's perfect. We're all learning and growing. But, you know, even on God's teams, uh, you know, God had the perfect congregation. Do you realize that? And one of his top three staff members named Lucifer, decided that he, he could do a better job than God. And he began to sow discontent and, and uh, distrust and, you know, I can do a better job. And, and in the perfect congregation, Lucifer led one-third of the angels in rebellion against God. How on earth does that happen? How on earth does that happen in a perfect congregation? I don't know. But even God, in his original team of angels, he didn't have, you know, he had perfection until one of them decided he was smarter than God. And then when God started his second congregation, the human race, Adam and Eve, small congregation, the entire congregation turned against God. 
I mean, how do you do that? You're in the Garden of Eden. You're, you're fellowshipping with, with the, the, you know, God of the universe, and you decide to listen to a serpent instead. How does that happen? But, but even in God's realm, there have always been attacks against unity. And it's always brought, every time there's been an attack against unity, it's always brought chaos, it's always brought heartbreak, and things like that. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus now has the opportunity to build a congregation. And he starts with a team of 12. And, you know, Jesus had a team of leaders, and then he he ministered to multitudes. Um, But even on Jesus' team of leaders, they didn't get along with one another. Do you know that Jesus had to break up fights amongst his disciples? I call them fights, arguments, at least three specific times in Scripture. Now, can you imagine if you were following Jesus, wouldn't you want to be on your best behavior? And um, one time the Bible says they were walking to a certain place and the disciples got into an argument about which of them was the greatest. And Jesus comes up and says, what are you talking about? Nothing. Right. Jesus' disciples are talking about, you know, which of them is the great. Now, we would never have an argument like that today because we know that it would sound arrogant to say, well, I'm greater than you are. We wouldn't argue like that. What we do is we just have power plays. We just just try to get everything done our way. Because we think our way is the best way and that type of thing. So, but Jesus had to break up arguments. You know, one of the arguments that Jesus had to break up among his disciples about which of them was the greatest when they were in a power play was at the Last Supper. Can you imagine that? Jesus is getting ready to break the bread and pour the, pour the fruit of the vine, the juice of the fruit of the vine. And, and um, they're, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. And that's when Jesus not only talked to them, but he also demonstrated. He he took the towel and he washed the feet of the disciples to communicate to them that, guys, this isn't about, you know, who can have the most power. This is about who can serve the most. And I've had pastors, you know, um, 13 of the years I was on staff at Rhema, I, I was the director of Rhema's Ministerial Association. And for 13 years, I had the privilege of overseeing uh, around 2,400 licensed and ordained ministers. And I can't tell you how many times I would get calls from pastors, and, and they were just talking about, you know, people aren't cooperating. There's, you know, everybody has their own agenda, and, and I've got this staff member that's trying to take over and trying to, you know, commandeer things. And, and I can't tell you how many, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of calls like that. And I got to the point where I heard so many, you know, had so many conversations about people being in strife and disunity that I would ask pastors, I would say, well, have you ever had to break up a fight in your church at a communion service? And they would invariably say no. And I would say, well, you're doing better than Jesus did. And then I would say, and and have you ever had your people getting drunk at a communion service? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, well, you're doing better than Paul did. There have always been problems with unity in teams. There's always been challenges. 
And, uh, you know, Jesus had it. And uh, Jesus one time, he had so many people leaving his ministry. They didn't like what he said. They were offended at what he said. One time Jesus had so many people leaving that he actually turned around and said to the 12, he said, do you want to leave also? And they, Peter was wise enough to say, no, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. But, you know, Jesus dealt with uh, staff problems. You know, his top assistant, Peter, pulled out a sword and cut off a guy's ear. You know, and every once in a while, pastors call and say, you know, my, I just had a staff member do something really dumb. I said, well, did he, did he assault somebody with a deadly weapon? Well, no, not that. Okay, well, Jesus had that. So I guess what I'm saying is that in this quest for unity, in this quest that, that we would have the same kind of unity, that was Jesus' prayer, was that we would have the same kind of unity that existed amongst the members of the Trinity. And, um, and that is the challenge of Christian growth. That is the challenge that is before the church today to step into that kind of teamwork and that kind of unity. And this is where we begin our search for Timothy. Um, people have asked me, why do you call this material in search of Timothy? And the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit is on a worldwide search to find people that have the kind of heart that Timothy had to cooperate with Paul and to serve in partnership and, and unity with him. So um, I want to, having said that, turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. And let's look at some of the things that we see between Paul and Timothy. Because there's really many people in the Bible that we could study. And in our book, we actually go into the details about different, the way Joshua helped Moses the way that Jonathan helped David. Um, there's all kinds of stories in the Bible about people who are willing to take on the attitude of a servant and work in partnership with spiritual leadership. And one of the things that we see, though, even from God and dealing with Lucifer and Jesus dealing with his 12 apostles who sometimes were not very cooperative is that Perfect leadership doesn't guarantee that there won't be problems in followership. God was the perfect leader, and yet he lost a third of the angels. Jesus was, I believe, a perfect leader, and yet he lost multitudes of people who chose not to cooperate with him. And as I work and interact with pastors all over the country, to this day we do, and I find that pastors are doing everything they can to be the best leaders they possibly can, even though all pastors, all of us are imperfect and learning and growing. Even though pastors are doing their best to become the best leaders they can be, it doesn't guarantee that anybody's going to be a good follower, even if they are a great leader. And so we want to look at not just what's involved in leadership, but we want to look what's involved in followership. How do followers become better followers? How do servants become better servants? And I just don't think there's any better model. I don't think there's any better example in Scripture than Timothy. And I want to look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2.19. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote Philippians? 
He was in prison. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And most, most scholars believe that he was in Rome here when he wrote this in Philippians chapter 2. And he says to the Philippians, now Philippi is in northern Greece. And if you know the map, you know it's a good ways, especially back then uh, when, you know, they would travel by land or by sea. Uh, to go from Rome to up to northern Greece was a hefty journey. So Paul is really separated from the Philippians when he's writing them this letter. And he says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus, Philippians 2.19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state or when I know your condition, for I have no one like-minded. And one translation says, I have no one else like-minded. I have no one else like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a father with a son, as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, we see certain traits of Timothy, and I want to give you eight of them just from this, uh, these verses alone. The first thing that we see about a Timothy, what is the characteristic of a Timothy? And my wife always reminds me, don't forget the ladies. So uh, what are the traits of a Timothy or a Timothina? Number one, a Timothy or a Timothina is someone who inspires trust in the heart of a leader. Stop and think about your, your relationship with either the senior pastor or the department head or the staff member, the volunteer leader that you work under. Do you inspire trust in them? When they think about giving you an assignment, do they say, man, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send this person to do this task? In order for Paul to trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, he had to believe that Timothy was going to do a great job. Paul trusted in Jesus, but his trust in Jesus was based on the excellence of Timothy. He knew that Timothy, whatever assignment he got, he was going to do it with all of his heart. Notice what he didn't say. Oh, my gosh, I may, I may even have to send Timothy to you. Oh, man, I, I don't want to do that because Timothy messes up everything I give him to do. No, he said, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Timothy inspired trust in Paul's heart. I'll tell you one thing. When, um, when a person is trustworthy, when a person is reliable and dependable, it brings a leader joy. It really does. And Paul, he loved these people so much, but he couldn't get to them because obviously being in prison. What we see here is that Paul, because of being in prison, had limitations and restrictions. But I want you to know your pastor, even though your pastor is not in prison, we hope, um, uh, has, has limitations and restrictions of just being a single person. 
They're just one person in one physical body. They've only got so much time. So Paul had restrictions and limitations here being in prison, but every leader has limitations and restrictions, and they need somebody that can be there, an extension of them, somebody that can be a a representative of them in areas that they can't get to because they can't do everything. So uh, number two, uh, a Timothy is someone whose ministry and work encourages a spiritual leader. Paul said, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I may be encouraged. Well, part of that encouragement was when he would get a report back, but part of it is just simply the encouragement that a faithful, dependable, reliable, conscientious worker, volunteer, servant gives a leader when they've given them an assignment. The third thing that we know about Timothy is that Timothy was accountable to Paul. He he was going to go visit the Philippians, and then he was going to bring a report back. Paul said that I may be encouraged when I know your state or when I know your condition. Now, there's something about flesh. How many of you have flesh? there's something about flesh that kind of wants to say, well, I don't want to be accountable. I'll, I'll do it, but I don't want anybody inspecting my work. Um, I want to do it the way I want to do it. Well, Timothy knew that I'm going to go visit these people on behalf of Paul. Then I'm going to take a report back to Paul and I'm going to get, why? Because I'm accountable to Paul. He knew he wasn't going to do his own thing. He, He didn't have his own agenda. Uh, he, he was responsible to the person who had given him the assignment. And I was talking with Pastor John yesterday about a church I was at in December. And, uh, boy, this just kind of illustrates uh, the antithesis of, of a Timothy attitude. Uh, in this particular church, um, the pastor noticed that the guy who was the head usher was kind of letting the position go to his head. And he was kind of like the omnipotent head usher. And to him, it wasn't an opportunity to serve. It was an ego trip. And he was kind of the dictator head usher guy. And he he wanted to be the omnipotent, all-powerful head usher. And the pastor was realizing this is not healthy. You know, this guy's got, it's gone to his head way too much. And see, if a person is not spiritually mature, you remember what Paul told Timothy? He said, don't put a novice, a spiritually immature person into a place of authority because if you do, they'll they'll, they'll be lifted up into pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And see, ministry positions and functions and things like that are opportunities to serve. They are not meant to be ego trips. They are opportunities for you to invest in others. They're not, you know, perches or pedestals from which you and I rule and reign, that type of thing. And uh, so the pastor thought it wise, and I I think he was 100% right. He wanted him to develop a team of leaders, you know, and there's nothing wrong with having a team of leaders. Now, one person pretty much needs to 
have some final say-so, but, but to share leadership, to share authority, to share responsibility. And he wanted him to have a team. And so the pastor asked him, we'll just say his name's Bill. He said, Bill, uh, I would like for you to give me the names of three people on your usher team that we can make assistant captains. And uh, they will work with you and we'll do some rotating of who's in charge when and things like that. And, um, but Bill didn't want to do that because he liked being the omnipotent usher. And he thought, if I share any of this authority or any of this responsibility, then I will no longer, you know, be king of the ushers. And um, so when the pastor would ask him, Bill, do you have those three names for me yet? Bill would say, well, no, I'm still praying about it. Still praying about it. Pastor asked multiple times, a year went by, and Bill had still not given the pastor any names at all. And so, um, after a year, the pastor said, Bill, you know, I, I, I really don't want to do this, but Bill, I'm going to have to ask you to step down. Uh, I've been asking you for a year to give me the names of three people, and, and you're not doing it. And so, Bill, I, I hate to do it, but I, I just have to ask you to step down from being the head usher. And so he removed him and, you know, put some new leadership in. But a few weeks later, somebody came to the pastor, another person that worked in the church, and said, Pastor, I just want you to know, I'm sure that was pretty unpleasant, but I just want you to know you did the right thing when you asked Bill to step down. And the pastor says, well, what do you mean? Why are you saying that? And he says, well, Bill told me a few months ago, he said, yeah, the pastor keeps bugging me to give him the names of three people to help and serve and but he said, I'm not going to do it unless God tells me to do it. Well, what, what, what is that in a word? That is rebellion. That is pride. How about just defiance? And, um, you know, that lack of cooperation. If we're going to, what Timothy is in one word, Timothy's cooperative. Timothy's cooperative. And Paul said, I, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I may be encouraged when I know your state. See, he knew that if he sent Timothy to minister to the Philippians, that Timothy would not see himself as Paul's replacement, but he would see himself as Paul's representative. And he would see that not as an assignment that he owned, but that he was simply a steward. And so, Paul, you want to know how the Philippians are doing? Paul, I will go, I will express your love to them, and then, Paul, I'll bring you back a report on how they are because, Paul, I'm serving you in this. So a, a Timothy is somebody who is accountable. Now, here's another very important point. Um, what, number four, a, a Timothy is someone who is like-minded, like-minded. Paul said, I have no one else who is like-minded. Do you know, if you're going to work with somebody in, 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 in partnership and cooperation, you may not have the exact same personality. You know, we all have different personalities, and that's all right. And you may not even have the same set of gifts. How many of you know we all have different gifts? But you have to have the same attitude. You have to have the same vision. And... Paul said, I don't have anyone else 
who is like-minded. That word like-minded comes from two Greek words that mean equal soul. Equal soul. And to be a Timothy to a Paul, you've got to have equal soul. Again, it doesn't mean you have the same personality. It doesn't mean you have the same gifts. But what it does mean, it means you have the same values. You have the same vision. You have the same attitude. You have the same heart. You're you're hooked up together. You're on the same page together. And, you know, when that's not the case, if you don't have common vision, shared vision, then the only alternative is to have division. Division, two, two separate visions. And the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? So, uh, equal soul. The next trait of a Timothy is, he said, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care. A Timothy is somebody who sincerely cares. They're not motivated by wrong motivations. Now, some people, we think, well, they're just motivated by money. But there's a lot of people in church work who are not motivated by money, but they're motivated by another asset, and that is power. There's a lot of people who who don't make money in ministry, but, boy, they thrive on the power of ministry. It's the ego thing again. Um, And Timothy, he said, sincerely cares for your state. So a Timothy or a Timothina is somebody who is motivated by love, They're motivated by compassion. They sincerely care for the people that they minister to. It's not about them. It's not about the power that they get out of it. It's about what they can invest into other people. And then the next point about a Timothy is a Timothy is someone who is not self-seeking. You know, Jesus demonstrated this attitude when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Paul said of Timothy, he said, he said, I have nobody else like Timothy who will sincerely care for your own state because everybody else seeks their own. They are self-seeking. And really, the mark of, of maturity is when we pray, your will be done. Your will, not my will, be done. And that translates. See, everybody can say that toward God, but can we say that toward one another when other people are in positions of spiritual leadership? See, the problem with that one gentleman who was the head usher, the problem was he said, well, I'm not going to cooperate with the pastor unless God tells me to do it. Well, see, he's, he's overstepped principle number one. You cannot respect divine authority if you don't respect delegated authority. And so this thing about all seek their own, and see, this is what makes you guys such a special group. I want to commend you for coming out on a cold Saturday morning because this, this seminar is not about how to get personal benefit. As a matter of fact, if somebody woke up and said, well, what's in it for me? Well, nothing's in this for you today. This is all about how you can help somebody else. This is how you can 
enrich somebody else. This is about how you can serve somebody else. This is about how you can pour your life out for somebody else. But see, the the average Christian, knowing that 80% of people in churches in America today don't serve, meaning they come to receive, when we're thankful they come to receive, but 80% of the people that walk in the doors of a church in America on Sunday morning have one question, what's in it for me? And you guys are exceptional. You guys are special because you're here, because you're servants, because you're laborers, because you're volunteers, because you've humbled yourself. And when you come to church, you're asking the question, what can I do to be a blessing? And you'll get far more out of it than the person that only comes to get something. Edwin Lewis Cole said, the counterfeit trinity is me, myself, and I. And so for you to be in the positions that you're in, for you to serve as you serve, you've already taken a major step toward being a Timothy because you're not self-seeking. And when we have laid aside our agendas that are born out of ego, that are born out of, you know, whatever, you know, we can have wrong motives about, and we just really lay ourselves before God, and when we take on the attitude of Jesus, when we take on the attitude of Timothy, then we are moving toward the fulfilling of that prayer that Jesus prayed because we are accepting the fact that we have a role, that we have a responsibility, that we have to stay in our lane of functioning and that that means we have to respect the fact there's other people who are over us in spiritual authority. Um, It doesn't mean we're inferior in any way, shape, or form, but we all have a part to play. You know, I'm glad that my lungs play the part that they were designed to play. And I just wonder, how bored do my lungs get sometimes? Air in, air out. Air in, air out. But aren't you glad your lungs stay in there? What if your lungs decide, you know what? Those kidneys, hey, I want to do what they get to do once in a while. No, you don't, you don't want your lungs doing what your kidneys do. You want your lungs to do what your lungs do. So we've all got a part to play. We've all got a place in the body, a place to function. 